This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Rebecca Zandbergen in for Pia. Every Wednesday, the Sunday Magazine brings you a bonus podcast, one hand-picked story from the week's show that we think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all our stories on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. And now I want to talk to you about stories, the ones we tell to better understand ourselves, from creation stories, imagining how we came to be, to cautionary tales that keep us from danger, to the gritty stories, the ones that tell hard truths and don't shy away from struggle, depression and loss. Alicia Elliott's new novel, And Then She Fell, mixes all of those elements. It follows her acclaimed essay collection, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, which explored growing up between her Mohawk and non-Indigenous heritage in the U.S. and Canada, in and out of poverty, grappling with her mother's mental illness and her father's abuse. Alicia lives in Brantford, Ontario, within the Six Nations Confederacy, and she's with me today in studio. Good morning. Good morning. So the character that is central to this story is Alice, and she's a, a, a new mother. She's struggling with postpartum depression. I understand this is a story that you have been writing for a long time. Yes, very long. How did it begin? So it started when I was in my undergraduate creative writing program, and I was trying to think of what I wanted to write for my short story that I had to submit. And one of the things that was really formative um, prior to going to university, I had already been accepted and everything I had applied, but I had gotten pregnant when I was 17 and then gave birth when I was 18. And so I had my son in late July and I was supposed to be going to university in September. Mm. And so we're very fortunate in that my husband's mother took on caring for our son like full time, basically. And then I would come home as soon as I was done classes on Friday, my dad would pick me up and then I would stay until as late as I could on Sunday and then like keep going back and forth. And the whole time I was like, I really, I felt so much shame and everything, but I, I thought it was like a calculated risk that I needed to take. So it would be better in the long run if I did this now. And then we figured everything out since it seemed to work out that way. But um, while I was in university, I wanted to do the most I could for my son. So I was pumping breast milk mm -hmm. and then I would store it in like a little freezer to take home on the weekends for them to mix with the formula to try and like, you know, have those nutrients and everything. And it was such an alienating experience because I was 18 and a mom and every four hours I was back in my dorm room, you know, pumping breast milk and everyone around me is like obviously 18 year olds who are, you know, having fun having parties, you know what I mean, going out. And like, it was so clear how different that experience was. And even when I did feel comfortable enough to share with people that I was a mother, 
I noticed like there was like a pulling away mm. of of it. And so like this idea that, you know, mothers are boring. If you'd want to talk about your children, how dare you? You're like, that's so boring. <laughs> you know, that's not interesting. There's nothing intellectually stimulating about the experience. And I also felt that when I gave birth, like even physically, my whole body had changed in ways that I felt I was totally unprepared for, even having read all of these things. And the month and a half that I was at home with my son was so disorienting in ways that like it almost felt like you know I always say it, like it felt like I was tricked almost like mm. about what that experience was like yeah and so I kind of channeled all of that into writing a short story about how hard it is to be a mother those everyday realities and really pushing back against this idea that there's nothing intellectually stimulating or interesting about it because it's so formative like it's it's so difficult. You're keeping a, a child alive. That per, that child relies on you. You're being pushed to all of your limits. And you've just given birth, too. So your body is, mm-hmm. you know, in this state of healing from, like, a major trauma. So mm-hmm. that was kind of where the story started. And then, of course, it just kept getting longer. It felt like it was never finished. So it just kept getting bigger. Yeah. And now it's a novel. Yeah. And now it is a novel. And in it, Alice talks a lot about her. She seems to believe that the baby hates her. Yeah. How does that come to be? I mean, it, there's a lot about nursing in there, the baby unwilling to take her breast and, and, and being what she perceives as unhappy. I mean, what, what, where did that come from? As I kind of hinted at, for me personally, there was, it was difficult because once I had gone to school, when I came back and if I were trying to nurse, it was so much easier at that point for my son to drink from a bottle and so it was like a very very back and forth thing and there's something that's so visceral about that connection between a mother and and a child who's nursing and so it feels like there's some sort of intent there even though there is absolutely no intent it's just a baby right the baby doesn't know and so but it's so emotional and so connected to what you what we perceive to be good mothers to be or to be able to do to magically make sure that their child is never crying and always happy. And that's what a good mother is. And so I think that it's easy, especially when you're very tired and exhausted to kind of have those thoughts circle back and be like, this is my fault. I'm doing something wrong and my baby can tell, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. fear and paranoia. Alice struggles a lot with whether or not she's doing the right things, if she's a good enough wife, if she's a good enough mother, if she's a good enough um, indigenous person in honoring her ancestors in that way. I mean, and she straddles two worlds. She's married a white man and she's moved into the city. I mean, how how did you sort of write a character that is straddling these two worlds and how much did you draw on your own experiences in doing that? Um. I think it felt very natural because I didn't grow up on the res. I didn't grow up on Six Nations. I grew up in different places in the States and then eventually moved when I was in high school to Six Nations. And so going from one to the other, you're able to see more like, why can't we have running water? Why can't, you know what I mean? Like literally as soon as you drive off the res, all of the houses are connected to a water line that the federal and provincial government fight over who is responsible for funding as soon as there's a reservation line. And so seeing that, I was just like, why is it like this? You know what I mean? And you are aware of that when you grow up on there, but like it was just so jarring to go from having to have not (laughs) or having not, I guess. Um, So to do that, it was very clear that, you know, 
there are these differences. And when I was in high school, all of the kids who are, who are going to high school on Six Nations have to be like bust out because there aren't high schools on the res. So when I was going to school in Brantford, it was like they had no concept of what life was like, even though we were right there. They had no concept of what was going on or the struggles or anything like that. And so it was very apparent to me that, that these things were happening. And that so there was automatically that straddling just going to school every day. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, having that, but then having it magnified by being displaced to Toronto, it, it doesn't seem like it's that far, but it is so far And when you don't have like your community around you. Because at least when we were going to high school, we would come back home and like, there's your community, right? Everybody understands what you're going through. And that isn't the case really when you're kind of living in another city. So I think that that kind of, dynamic is just like really amplified when you're going from res environments to non-res environments. Mm -hmm. And Alice is is sort of struggling with um, seeing and hearing things. It's sort of unclear in the book um, what is happening to her. She keeps seeing uh, Pocahontas, the Disney's Pocahontas, um, and, and, and speaking to that character eventually becomes uh, another name and another uh, so I'm just curious in in all of this. I mean, how how did you decide that you wanted to write about a woman who's who's struggling with her sense of mental health? She thinks, and it's not clear really what's going on. So there's um, a probably terrible coincidence in that there was a point where I realized. I wanted to kind of have more thriller, horror elements added to it. And it occurred to me that other than postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis is something that's not really well understood or really even talked about. And so I started doing research into that and found that most women who had experienced that didn't know it was a possibility either. And reading kind of their accounts and everything. And as I was doing the research for that, my and I talk about this in my first book, my own mother has um, a schizoaffective disorder. So it's a bipolar disorder with um, schizophrenic elements. And so I have seen her in psychosis and mania and all of these things. And it was always my greatest fear that that would happen to me because I knew there was genetic elements to it. And then in August of 2020, that did happen to me. Um, there was just a, a, a perfect storm of terrible circumstances that made it so that I was on the other side of that. And even though I had seen from like very close up what that looked like for my mother, the way that I had been kind of taught to frame it was in this way where it's like, you can't trust anything she's saying when she's manic. She, you know, she's so deceptive and like, you can't believe anything. And so like that really charged how I viewed her. And then when I was on the other side of that, that was all being leveled against me. And so knowing that and knowing how I, I had assumed all of these things about what it would be like to be in that state and even having read other women's accounts of this from the inside, it still didn't prepare me for what mm. it actually was like. So what did you learn? Well, it, it I think that it felt like it was almost like transparent overlays of reality. And so I could see and understand and comprehend well everything that was going on in what everyone else would consider like real life. But there was a second thing that was on top of it. And I was aware that other people couldn't see or hear or whatever, but it felt like it was still real. And so I think that that this idea that 
oh, well, I was lying about this or that and the other thing. And I was like, no, I'm not lying. Like, I, I have proof of this, but no one would believe anything that I said because I had the psychosis. And it was like they thought I couldn't understand what was happening around me. I could understand like I, I have vivid memories of how all of it went down and how terrifying it was to even more so than, than the psychosis was how people were so quick to dismiss and dehumanize me. And it was like all of the things that I had done to try and build my own reputation. They just were thrown out the window as soon as, you know, oh, she's crazy. And so that feeling, I think, was something that was really, really transformative in terms of how I looked at the situation and the character and how I wanted to portray it and what I felt was responsible in terms of portraying that. It, it, you know, it, people will draw comparisons between your life and Alice. Do, does that bother you or do you do you feel as though, you know, you, you're writing a fiction book. That's what authors do. Yeah. Um, but did, did I mean, how much is it sort of something that you at least drew from your own experience? Well, I think it's funny because I already wrote a nonfiction book. And so it's just like um, if I wanted to write another nonfiction book, I would have written another nonfiction <laughs> book. But what I thought was so transformative and so important to me about it being fiction was that whereas in my real life, all of these things that had befallen me, I couldn't change those things. But I could change those for Alice. I could make it so that her family did believe her or like parts of her family did believe her. And in some ways it was kind of healing to imagine what that would have looked like if, you know, members of my family who were in total trauma responses when this was all happening. And I, I don't blame them for anything, but they're also carrying forward a societal expectation that I don't think a lot of people really interrogate how they look at people who they think of as crazy, who they think of as scary, and all of these things, having the scary mental illnesses. They don't really interrogate what that looks like and how that means that they treat people who are obviously exhibiting symptoms. And so that was something that I was very aware of as I was writing kind of the the difference between them. And, you know, like none of the things that happened to Alice in the in the novel have happened in my life. I had like my experience of psychosis and mania was very different from her experience. But those inner feelings, that understanding of once you see it, now you can't unsee how someone perceives you because of this. And then whenever you look around and you see, you know, even walking through the streets of Toronto, if someone is having a mental health crisis, how everyone turns away, how everyone laughs and you know, even though it's not, Alice is not me, I, all of that emotion and understanding and, and everything went into her her emotion and understanding. I, I'm sorry you, you went through all of that. It, it sounds, I mean, it's not, you know, I think a lot of people will, will resonate with the words that you're saying. H how are you doing now? Um, I'm very fortunate in that I haven't had another episode so I'm I'm good in that regard. Um, and it, and the other thing is, is like, I think people have this assumption that once you're no longer in that state, that you can see everything clearly. But the thing that was so unexpected for me was that when you're in a state like psychosis or mania, everything you're doing makes sense. You understand everything. And so if someone is doing something and you interpret it in a, in a particular way, you know why that is. And once you're no longer in that state, you still have that understanding. You know why you did those things. And so that's why it's very hard sometimes to to be like, oh, yeah, I was crazy because like there's this very bizarre misconception that 
when you are in that state that like once you're out of it, you're like, oh, well, that was that made no sense at all. But it did make sense. Mm -hmm. And so it was something that I've, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I'm not doing that now. And I'm trying to take steps to make sure that I'm level. But I I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's something where it could happen at any given point. Right. Mm hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about Alice, and during the course of the book, she's trying to rewrite the Haudenosaunee creation story, mm-hmm. a story of Sky Woman, um, and she sort of has these fits and starts of trying to write this book and really wanting to honor her father's stories that were told to her and wanting to make him proud. Tell me a little bit about about what you were trying to achieve and Alice really trying to successfully tell the because she's she feels the incredible weight of of sharing this story for generations and generations to come. What what were you hoping to to show the audience in that way? Um, one of the interesting things, I guess, or um, you know, Haudenosaunee people are very, very, we're very proud of our history and, and of, of, of everything, our philosophies and our laws and all of these things, our culture and language. But the thing is, is that what I find very fascinating uh, is that, you know, the entire field of anthropology in the U.S. really started with these academics being fascinated with my people and coming and spending time. And then they would then write these these things that got them prestige that, you know, developed an entire field. And so they were able to take our stuff and then go away. And it's fascinating because in some ways their understandings sometimes didn't match up because of they were coming with their own preconceived notions and, and interpreting things a particular way. Mm-hmm. But when they did leave, because there was this active, concentrated effort by you know, the country of Canada and and also churches and everything to try and like push our culture out of us. In some ways, those texts then are the ones that we have to return to ourselves to try and wrestle back our culture and, you know, rebuild. And so I was like very aware of this history and this fact that like so much that's written about us has been not written by us. And that's how everyone interprets because there is this responsibility when you're writing something because people are going to access it who have no concept of and have no way of fact checking any of this. So they're just going to believe it. Right. And so for us to actually be able to write about ourselves and really think about our own culture and our own language in ways that are relevant to us. I think that that's a really powerful thing. And it also bears a lot of responsibility. And so Alice in the book is kind of like, am I doing this the right way? Um, What's the long-term ramifications if I make this narrative choice over this narrative choice? And I think those are things that are very important to people who are aware that this representation has so much weight because they know what the effects are if that is misinterpreted and then used against you and your people later down the line. So I think that that's something that maybe people who don't who don't have to worry about their culture and their language disappearing, they don't have that concept of what that responsibility entails. And so Alice is really wrestling with that in a way that I also wrestled with that as I was writing it. And I thought it was better to just put it in the book about what it is so that it was a more accurate reflection of 
the choices that storytellers make Mm -hmm. all of the time whenever they tell a story. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, we just marked Truth and Reconciliation Day in this country. Uh, Reconciliation, of course, is not something that we accomplish in one day. And this is certainly (laughs) something we've talked a lot about. Um, But what will you be thinking about the days ahead as as you share this story and, and more about yourself and the Haudenosaunee creation story? What do you turn to in those moments? Um... I generally try to turn to my own community because in a lot of ways, I think that the public is much further ahead in terms of understanding and wanting things to happen than the people who are in charge and making these decisions. And by which I mean politicians and and also police chiefs. I mean, we're looking still at police chiefs in Winnipeg still refusing to search the dumps, even though this has been something that has happened. There's precedent for them searching dumps for remains before, but they're refusing to do that when it comes to Indigenous women. So it it comes to a point where, you know, now there's blockades, now there's all of this stuff, because that's the only way that Canada ever listens to us. That is, so, you know, there's this idea that we were so angry and all of this stuff. We have every right to be angry, you know, And, and as, you know, we have politicians who love to you know, wear an orange shirt and buy an orange donut from Tim Hortons and say a land acknowledgement and say, aren't we so progressive? Let's pat ourselves on the back. What are they doing when it comes to indigenous women who are right there in the dump in the bodies? Why are they not interfering with that? Why are they not putting pressure? They're saying that that's okay. You know, like this is what liberal politics looks like. It's all about representation and what it looks like on the surface. It's not about caring and going deeper. They love the idea that we can buy reconciliation with an orange T-shirt and a donut, but they don't like the hard work of actually having to reckon with how systemically this continues to happen by their allowing people to continue to do these things and devalue indigenous people. And that is the truth. And I am hoping that people are going to really think about the truth and come to terms with it, because this is how it happens by death by a million cuts, although only it's not um, it's not cuts to us. Those are our families. And so I hope that, you know, I'm going to be focusing on the joys and and because that's what we need to get by. That's what we always needed. We always you know, we're always laughing. We're always you know, that's what my family does. And that when we're together, but I'm hoping that Canadians are thinking about the truths of right now, because we can't get to reconciliation until we look at the truth. We're always going to be fighting over what's true if we aren't actually looking at what's in front of us mm-hmm. and we're keeping a blindfold on. And do you hope when people read about Alice in your book that they that they find a bit of that truth and, and, and they feel some of what you've just described? I hope so. But I mean... I'm I'm not naive, like however people are going to interpret my work is how they're going to interpret it. But I do hope that how I have constructed Alice and how she talks about these things, because like all indigenous people, we're all aware of these things constantly. We can't not be. And so, you know, she thinks about in the course of the book, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry comes out report. And so that is a topic of conversation at a dinner party. And she has to listen as these people say these things to diminish the history of this country. And so it does fit in, you know what I mean, with the idea of truth and reconciliation. And I hope people think about those things as they read the book. Alicia Elliott, thank you for coming in this morning. Thank you so much for having me.
Alicia Elliott's new novel is called And Then She Fell. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on the Sunday Magazine over on our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen, in for Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.